Welcome to Songcraft, Spotlight on Songwriters, a bi-weekly podcast featuring in-depth conversations with and about the creators of lyrics and music that stand the test of time. I'm Scott B. Bomar. And I'm Paul Duncan. To make sure you don't miss an episode, please take a moment to subscribe to our show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. You can also keep up with us on social media by searching for one word, Songcraft Show, or visit us at songcraftshow.com. And if you believe in the Songcraft mission, please consider supporting us by visiting patreon.com slash songcraftshow. Our guest on this episode of Songcraft is Dave Alvin. The Grammy-winning artist, musician, songwriter, poet, and roots music pioneer launched his professional career when he and his brother Phil founded the Downey, California-based group The Blasters. Blending rockabilly and R&B, Dave became the band's primary songwriter, pinning classics such as Marie Marie, American Music, Border Radio, Jubilee Train, Little Honey, Dark Knight, and Long White Cadillac, which later became a top 40 country hit for Dwight Yoakam. After a brief stint as a member of the band X, Dave launched a solo career and continued to craft critically acclaimed songs that defy genre, including Fourth of July, Haley's Comet, Dry River, King of California, Abilene, Ashgrove, Harlan County Line, Johnny Ace is Dead, and Downey to Lubbock, a collaboration with Jimmy Dale Gilmore. Dave's songs have been covered by Los Lobos, Little Milton, Buckwheat Zydeco, Shaken Stevens, Joe Ely, Robert O'Keen, James McMurtry, and others. Additionally, his music has been featured on a number of TV soundtracks, including Justified and The Sopranos. Part one. Well, Paul, we're putting this episode out on the 4th of July. Yep. And if you uh, are familiar with our American customs, that is also known as Independence Day. Right. You've heard of this, right? I have. Yeah. And, uh, you know, I remember as a kid, um, my family and I, we would often go to watch fireworks on the 4th of July. I mean, often, once a year, but often, yeah. <laughs> often. Uh, we would just show up on like other days and never be there. But on the 4th of July, they were there. Um, but... Every time you go see a fireworks display, there's like a a canonical set of songs. Right. That same songs. It's the same songs that like no one ever throws a wild card into the <laughs> into the soundtrack of the Fourth of July fireworks display. Right. Um. And now Dave Alvin, who's our guest today, he has a song called the Fourth of July. Right. Which is you know one of the reasons we're having that particular episode air today because, you know, we like to be cute We're like that. appropriate. Yeah, yeah. Always. It's thematic. Um, and I don't hear Dave Alvin in the uh, no. in the fireworks displays. That's not part of the canon. Well, what's funny, too, is that, the, like, the Christmas canon is, like, the songs, but right. you'll have different versions of them. You'll have different people singing them. That's not true of the 4th of July. No. No one else sings Neil Diamond's America. Right, But exactly. Neil Diamond. Yeah, no one's going to sing Born in the USA, but Bruce Springsteen. Right. Um, and I, I'm wondering, I have to confess, I have not been to a fireworks display um, in in some time, right. uh, primarily because my neighborhood is a fireworks display from about <laughs> mid June through late August, um, so there's there's really not a need. I literally climb on my roof on the Fourth of July and just look 360 because the neighbors are trying to outdo each other with professional grade fireworks. Put which the is, AirPods in and play your own playlist. <laughs> just and, play yeah, my own. That point. It's incredibly dangerous and incredibly thrilling um, to watch children and drunk people shoot off <laughs> like Disneyland grade fireworks uh, all night. Yeah. Um, but I digress. I haven't been to a professional fireworks display in a while, so I don't know if new songs have entered the canon. But uh, I know, you know, Born in the USA, yep. um, James Brown, Living in America, that's one that For I used sure. to hear a lot. What are some of the other, uh, the, the evergreens of the 4th of July? Well, uh, 
you know, you're probably going to get American Pie, which is a little odd. But you're <laughs> right. probably going to hear that from time <laughs> right. to time, just because it's got the word America in it. Yeah. Um, you know, the one, the one that you're always going to get, and I don't want to go too deep into this, but you're going to get Lee Greenwood, "God Bless the USA." Yes. Yes. I just don't think that's a great song. No. We're we're just here to talk about songs objectively, right? Yeah. And, I don't like I, that song. The line that I really don't get in that song is the line that says, at least I know I'm free. <laughs> Who's he talking to? I, yeah, exactly. I'm just not sure what it means. I mean, right. I, I kind of think the freedom is big. Right. I'm not sure it's like at least. I'm not sure that's the least. <laughs> yeah, it's kind of the main thing. Yeah, right? <laughs> it's kind of the it's primary like, feature. Which you don't like other things about America, but at least I've got the freedom to... Yeah, that's, to... that should be reserved for like, well, at least it's not raining. Exactly. Um, <laughs> so I think that's kind of an odd song. Um, yeah, uh, there's a funny story about that song. And, you know, we interviewed my dad uh, on this podcast, and I can't remember if we talked about this, but my dad wrote uh, a song that Lee Greenwood recorded. Hmm. And uh, it was on his album, and it was supposed to be his next single and I think he was playing on the Grand Ole Opry or some other show but anyway my dad uh, went to this show um, to hear Lee Greenwood play his song and like announce this as his next single instead he goes you know I've written this brand new song and I'm going to play it here tonight for the first time and it was God Bless USA. And my dad was like, there goes my single. He just watched his fortunes disappear <laughs> in front of him. <laughs> yeah. So, uh, so and, and there's also the time that I, I accidentally uh, hit him in the face with a water balloon. Uh, Lee Greenwood, not my dad. Oh, yeah. That's a, that's a story I've told on here before when I was a kid. We were throwing <laughs> water balloons at passing cars, and, and one just had its window down, and, and it went right in the window and just right to the face of Lee and Greenwood. felt just like the lakes of Minnesota, I'm sure. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, he he was doing some blessing after that, but it wasn't God blessing yeah. the USA. It was more uh, directed at, at me being blessed out. But uh, and who can blame the guy? If I was driving down the road and a water balloon hit me in the face, totally. I probably wouldn't That's be real. Eighties thing that. to happen. I can't even imagine like at this point, like having a water balloon right. fly in my window and hit Got me. Got all face. over his uh, his satin baseball jacket and <laughs> right. like you know soaked his chest hair. I'm sure. I. You know, you start thinking about songs to, to enter the canon. I'm not even sure there have been, you know, I I looked at a list, you know, as we were talking, I see Miley Cyrus party in the USA. Right. I, I mean, is that a patriotic song? I don't know. Does I think count? all it, all that it requires is that the word America or USA is in it. Because Born in the USA is not a, I mean, that's kind of a critical, yeah. you know, that song has a um, kind of cynical view. Yeah. Uh, but that always gets played on the 4th of July. So I think the, the, if USA or America is said in the chorus and it's prominent, right. that's good enough to get it into the... I think the John Cougar Mellencamp's R-O-C-K in the USA is an underappreciated USA song. I, I that's like a that good song. tune. Yeah. And I would like I, that to be part of my you know fireworks playlist. I think John Mellencamp is, uh, probably uh, deserves more respect than he gets. Um, that you know We might should do a whole part one on that. All right, I'm going to put a pin in that. Yeah. I think that's something we should talk about. Yeah, time. I agree. Um, but uh, anyway, 4th of July... Um, Dave Alvin has a song, of course, called Fourth of July. Dave Alvin also put out a, a book a few years ago called Nana Big Jim and the Fourth of July that was a collection of his his poems. Huh. And um, which could be read during a fireworks display. It could be spoken word. <laughs> and you can listen to Lee Greenwood on your uh, <laughs> on your iPods while you're doing it. Um, but Dave actually has a new book uh, coming out. And the reason I know this um, is because I edited this book. Well, as you know, when I'm not podcasting, I work in the, the book industry. Um, so I edited this book and the, the book is called new highway selected lyrics, poems, prose, essays, eulogies, and blues. Mm. And it's 
well, that's what it is. It's a collection of lyrics. There's um, essays that he's written. There's articles that he's written about, you know, different artists, um, liner notes from some of his own albums. And Dave's a great writer. And yeah. this is a very cool collection of um, of his stuff. So we are going to give away a free one free copy of New Highway to uh, a Patreon subscriber. And uh, Paul, why don't you tell the folks what Patreon is, just in case they don't know. Well, Patreon is an online framework, let's call it. It's an online community that you can join to support, you know, groups like, say, us. Who, you For know, example. Yeah. Someone who you like what they're doing and you support their mission. Um, you can have, you know, just join for a couple bucks a month or a little more a month if you'd like to. Uh, it comes out automatically. It's really easy. And then there's like a tier of rewards that we provide. Um, based on uh, how much you decide to contribute month to month. And uh, some of that has to do with interacting with us. Some of that has to do with um, being a part of some shows from time to time. And then there's some, you know, T-shirts and goodies and stuff like that, which uh, which we're getting better about shipping out. <laughs> we, <laughs> we are indeed. So if you go to patreon.com, that's P-A-T-R-E-O-N.com slash Songcraft show uh you can figure out how you can help support us whatever level you support us at however you will be eligible for uh this dave alvin giveaway so what we need you to do is if you already are a patreon subscriber or after you sign up and you would like to be entered in this drawing for a free copy of dave alvin's new book uh just send us an email to songcraftshow at gmail.com or contact us through our website at songcraftshow.com and uh, let us know that you want to be entered in that drawing and and if you are, in fact, an active Patreon subscriber, uh, we will select somebody from uh, from the hat and uh, award that in an upcoming episode. So um, anyway, very cool to have the chance to work with Dave Alvin on New Highway, selected lyrics, poems, prose, essays, eulogies and blues. It's available for pre-order right now on Amazon.com or wherever you get your books and uh, highly recommended because I got to work on it. I got a real close insider view. In fact, just listening to Dave's lyrics while reading through them, just to because I was checking, you know, to yeah. make sure everything was in in place, um, was an incredible experience actually. And there's a song we don't talk about on this episode uh, called "The Man in the Bed." Mm. Um, it is a song that uh, is just probably one of the best songs I've heard in years. Yeah. And here's a here's a quick clip of it. Now the nurse over there doesn't know. That I ain't some helpless old so-and-so I could have broken her heart not that long ago Now the nurse over there doesn't know That the man in the bed isn't me Slipped out the door and I'm running free Young and wild like I'll always be The man in the bed is in me Yeah, you showed me that song just before we came on today, and I was just kind of floored by it, taken aback. Yeah. Um, as, as someone who sort of watched my father go through the aging process, um, and uh, I mean, I guess we're going through the aging process even. I mean, it's just, just to... You to, are for sure. <laughs> I am for sure. Um, <laughs> and just to think about kind of what was and what's coming and, and the right. parts of your identity that you hold and... and 
I, I can't imagine addressing that subject any better. Yeah. Any more beautifully, any more deftly. I talked to Dave about that song while we were working on the book and I was like, man, that's just incredible. He's like, yeah, I wrote that for my dad. Um, so it's like this, you know, it's a personal song and it's just like, poof, anybody with, you know, that's gone through that with a parent or grandparent or, you know, just as <laughs> tuned in to, to sort of how life yeah. <laughs> you know, tends to work and, and how our identity, um, I, you know, is not what our bodies are necessarily. Uh, oof, it's, it's a powerful And song. people who aren't writers don't always know how difficult it is at times to write about something that you're that close to. Sometimes yeah. it's easier to write objectively about a subject that you've actually got some distance from. Yeah. But when you have that kind of emotional proximity, sometimes it can be difficult to really handle it. And to know that Dave actually wrote that about his dad even makes it more kind of awe-inspiring to me. Yeah, for sure. He's an incredible writer. Um, once again, New Highway is the book. Definitely recommend checking that out. Go ahead and pre-order your copy or uh, send us a message if you want to enter that drawing and you're a Patreon subscriber. Other than that, we're going to quit our yakking and... Uh, get to this conversation with Dave Alvin, who is an incredibly gifted writer, uh, amazing artist and a great guy. You'll hear all about it right now. Part two. Dave, welcome to Songcraft. It's great to be here. Well, it's great to speak with you. Um, now the, the title track of your 2004 album, Ashgrove says when I was a young boy, I used to slip away down to the Ashgrove to hear the old bluesmen play. And from what I understand, that's, pretty much straight autobiography. Uh, and I'd love to hear a little bit about the kind of music that you were soaking up as a kid growing up in California and, and what impact live music in particular had on you as you were kind of developing your sensibilities. Yeah, that's a big question because uh, growing up in California at that time, uh, late 50s, early 60s, up until mid-60s, uh, you could hear everything. Uh, you know, every type of music. Um, and so every type of music had an effect on me, you know. Hmm. Um, you know, uh, you know. of course, I was always attracted to things. Before I knew the term blues or rhythm and blues, I always kind of was attracted to uh, music that had that going on. Right. You know, um, and that certain rhythm, you know, certain, you know, guitar players, certain this, that, and the other, you just hear on the radio. You know whether it was, uh, you know, uh, you know something like uh, uh, a Fats Domino or a Big Joe Turner or a Little Richard, or whether it was Carl Perkins. You know, and when you're a little kid, you don't, you know, you don't know genres. You just know what's on the radio, right? <laughs> yeah. And so, but then um, there was also on Saturday nights um, when I was a kid out here on Channel Thirteen. Um, Cal Worthington would, would the, the used car salesman would block by time on Channel 13, and he would do two things. He would play the shows that were, you know, taped in Nashville or taped in Oklahoma, you know, or wherever they were taped, you know, of country music, and he'd play those, um, you know, so you would get the, the Jim and Jesse show kind of right. thing, you know. Yeah. Um, and But he also, what he did that was really even cooler was uh, he had live music broadcast from his used car lot. Yeah. And so there would be, you know, uh, a lot of the, the artists from the town hall party, you know, um, uh, you know, be Merle Travis and people like that, um, and Molly B, um, you know, and, uh, 
And then, so I would watch that. You right. know, I was fascinated by that. And to me, everything that I heard, you know, in those days when I was a little kid, you know, the term rock and roll was being thrown around, you know, both both positively and disparagingly. And to me, anything that had a guitar was rock and roll. <laughs> so I didn't really hear it as country music. I heard it as, you know, you know and, and some of the Bakersfield West Coast stuff was pretty close to rock and roll, you know. Right. Yeah. And, uh, you know, and Cal Worthington would show the, the Buck Owens shows that were, you know, taped out in Oklahoma. Buck would fly to Oklahoma, tape them, fly back to California. Um, and then Channel 5 had uh, a thing called Melody Ranch, which was hosted by Billy Mize. Um, and so so from a very early age, I was hit with Billy Mize, you know. Right. Uh, you know, who was one of the, the bakers who stalwarts. So that had a big effect on me uh, growing up. And then, yeah, live music, I started seeing shows very early. My mom was very uh, patient and open-minded about that. And... Um, used to drive my brother and his friends to go to a place called the Shrine Exposition Hall, and they'd go see the, you know, the very early Mother's Own Invention or, you know, Jimi Hendrix or, um, you know, people like that. Um, and I would sit in the car with my mom because I was just a little too young, and I would just stare at the building knowing that there was magic going on inside <laughs> that building, something All magical right. going on in there. And so then about a year or two later... She, she she would allow me to go to shows, so I got to see, very early on, I got to see Cream. Um, and my mom would sit in the parking lot and wait, and I'd go in with one or two friends. Wow. And, you know, um, and I saw Jimi Hendrix twice that way when I was, uh, you know, 12 years old. And, you know, that cha- Jimi Hendrix especially changes your life, mm-hmm. you know. Um, and um, I realized even as a 12-year-old that, I never wanted to try to be like Jimi Hendrix because no one could. You know? <laughs> there's, there's nobody that could do that. They could pull that off. And guys, you know, guys, and maybe one or two women have come close, but not really. It's not the same thing. So anyway, but then not not long after seeing Jimi Hendrix and having my, you know, for lack of a better term, mind blown, right. um, I started, my brother started, you know, taking me along to go see the old, the old blues players, um, both at the Ashgrove, like a club like the Ashgrove. And, you know, the first show we saw there was the Johnny Otis Orchestra with um, Big Joe Turner, T-Bone Walker, and Eddie Cleanhead Vincent. Wow. And it was an old-style old R&B review. They would, you know, T-Bone would go up and do three songs, Big Joe would go up and do three songs. And it was an orchestra with charts and arrangements and, and a horn section, the whole bit. And, and that just was one of you know, that and Jimi Hendrix, you know, seeing, you know, Big Joe Turner and Timo Walker. When I saw them, they were at the tail end of their prime, right? But they were still, but they were still in their prime, mm-hmm. yeah. you know. And um, that just, you know, is one of my most treasured memories, you know, um, because there's no way, really, now, you know, if you listen to old records. Uh, there's no way to convey the power that they had live. Hmm. Yeah. You know, they had years and years of experience, decades of experience of playing to audiences, and um, they were still, you know, they were still powerful figures. Those experiences, Jimi Hendrix and Big Joe Turner, and then Lightning Hopkins, and 
you know, go on down the list of people that I saw when I was a kid, you know, Freddie King, Johnny Guitar Watson, uh, Mance Lipscomb, Reverend Gary Davis, you know, um, Big Mama Thornton, wow. you know, go down wow. the list. I saw them all. I, hearing you list these names, I, and I think of go, going to see shows like that, especially as a you know young person, must have felt like getting struck by lightning. And then you know we've equated at times songwriting to capturing lightning in a bottle. So I'm curious to how you went from those moments of getting struck by lightning to capturing lightning of your own and, and beginning to write your own songs. Um, it took it took a while, you know. Um, I got my first songwriting lesson from Big Joe Turner. Because we followed Big Joe around so much from gig to gig, whether he was playing a, a, a sort of, you know, a mixed club like the Ashgrove that had a mix of, you know, different audience members um, from all walks of life and social economic strata to going to clubs down in South Central where Big Joe would be. You know, say at the Ashgrove, he's playing to uh, a sold-out house of, you know, 250 people and then you know, a week later, he's playing at the York Club on Florence Avenue mm-hmm. for 10, you know. And mm-hmm. and that just struck me as, wow, that's really weird. How do, you, how do you go from being a big star to doing this? Blah, blah, blah. Right. And so we followed Big Joe around, and one day I wrote a song. I was walking home from school, and it was about a mile, mile and a half walk from the school home. And I wrote a song in my head for Big Joe. And, uh, and I had the horn arrangements. I had everything, man. And uh, so a few days later, I saw Big Joe Turner, and I said, you know, I was, you know, 13, 14 years old, Mr. Turner, I'm going to be shunned for you. And Big Joe said, how does it go? And, you know, um, 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 and I could not remember the song. <laughs> and and Big Joe just says, if you can't remember it, it ain't no good to begin with. <laughs> and that was, that was, you know, that was my first songwriting lesson. <laughs> and it's also, you know, I, I've, I've never done demos in the sense of, you know, I've co-written with people that as soon as you get the first line, they turn on their, you know, their home studio and they start figuring out bass lines. No, <laughs> you <yeah. know? laughs> I've never been that guy. I, I, I carry songs around me for months, years even, just spinning in my head, you know, because of what Big Joe Turner said. Wow. And, um, <laughs> you know, I don't really recommend that to up-and-coming songwriters, but it, but it was it's the rule that I've lived by. And so when I started writing songs for the Blasters, um, by that time, you know, I knew all the members of the Blasters. We were blues and R and B guys, you know, with with you know you know leaning leanings towards you know rockabilly and country and even jazz. You know, we were kind of all over the map, but basically we were blues R and B guys. And so I had to write songs that fit a blues R&B band, but weren't blues and R&B purely. Hmm. And uh, so I had to figure out how to do that. And that was my, you know, big challenge, you know. One of the things that we did learn from Big Joe Turner and, and T-Bone Walker and Whitehead and those guys, you know, when you're a little kid, you want to be like them because they're bitching. They're, they're, they're powerful. Yeah. Um, they're, they're, you know, in some ways, without getting too new agey here, you know, guys like that are shamans in many ways, you know, both the male and female performers, you know. So you want to be like them, but early on we learned that, no, you can't. And as a songwriter, I learned that I can, I can 
you take a lot of the stuff that I um, learned from them and saw them do and then apply it into other contexts. So, you know, a song like um, one of my earliest successful songs was a song called Marie Marie. And uh, when I wrote that, I, I knew that a, that a blues R&B band could play it and play it um, uh, convincingly. Hmm. Um, and, you know, we're a lot of, especially the blasters, because we were all pretty open-minded musically. And, you know, there's a lot of blues bands that maybe couldn't have played Murray Murray if I would brought it to them. Uh, but I knew that my brother could sing like that. You know, we one of the people we'd seen a lot when we were growing up was Clifton Chenier, Clifton and Cleveland Chenier. And, and so, you know, Zydeco and Cajun music always had a, a melodic influence on me. Hmm. And uh, so Marie Marie's kind of like a, a Cajun melodic Chuck Berry song for, for a blues band to play, you know. Marie Marie Not only was that on the Blasters' first independent album called American Music, but then that was re-recorded for your second self-titled album the following year. But, I mean, that song has had many lives. Shaken Stevens covered it, made it a top 20 hit in the UK. It's been covered by artists ranging from Buckwheat Zydeco to Los Lobos to the punk band MXPX. And, you know, you even reimagined it as kind of a rockabilly song. And then in 2009, you recorded it on the Dave Alvin and the Guilty Women album as a, a Cajun song, as you say. Um, give us a little insight into the process of, of writing that and, and, and what about that song it is that you think is not only so enduring, but also really genre-defying? Um, it, it's, it's hard to say because I was, that was about the fifth or sixth song I ever wrote in my life. Um, I'd written songs as a little kid, writing in my mom's car. I would I would just sit and sing and make up songs. I, you know, I'd see somebody walking a dog, and I'd sing a song about a dog. I'd make <laughs> up a song about a dog. Right. But I never thought, you know, especially the way that I was brought up, I, being a quote-unquote songwriter was not a career option, <laughs> you know? Yeah. To me, songwriters came from, you know, what does Leonard Cohen call it? The Tower of Song, right. you know, and that's where songwriters live, and that's where you know. And I didn't realize for a long time that no song, you know, Bob Dylan, no, he's just a guy from Hibbing, Minnesota. Right. He's not from you know, he's not from uh, some Tower of Song, and um, so, and you know, with the Blasters, you know, we were we were doing the, we were playing bar gigs and playing, you know, Junior Parker songs and Howlin' Wolf songs and Carl Perkins songs and things like that. And uh, we finally got the chance to record for this little rockabilly label called Rollin' Rock. And um, the, but the head of Rollin' Rock, this guy, Rockin' Ronnie Weiser, um, 
you know, he said that, you know, I can't, I can't sign you guys unless you have an original song. I need some original songs. And so I had studied poetry in college, and the professors there had taught us how to write traditional poetry, you know, and, you know, writing sonnets and things like that. It wasn't just write free verse. And um, so I had, a, I had a background in rhyming. You know, one of the things that the professors taught was how to, you know, do internal rhymes, external rhymes, nasal rhymes, you know, how to write in meter, this, that, and the other. And so suddenly I could, I could combine my two loves, which were writing and music, into one thing. And once I started realizing that, then songs started showing up. And so when the guy said, uh, we need, you need original songs, <laughs> my brother said, okay, everybody meet back in five days at rehearsal and everybody bring in two songs. And I brought in three and nobody else brought in any. <laughs> so, so the magic wand was hit on my head. You know, Cap, you're a songwriter now. <laughs> right, you, you fell know? into it. And uh, that'll do it. So yeah. with Marie Marie, you know, it was, I remember, right, it, it, it was a two-parter. Um, I was laying in bed and and just kind of strumming a guitar while laying in bed, and the melody came to me. And um, and then the next day, uh, that evening, the next evening, we had blaster rehearsal, and uh, so about a half an hour before my brother and I left for rehearsal, I sat down with a blank piece of paper and wrote the lyrics. And uh, while I was writing them, I had an image in my mind that of something I'd seen as a little kid um, back when the area that we grew up in was more rural and there were still farms and, and, and orchards and groves. And I remember being in, in my dad's car and driving by in the evening around sunset, driving by this farmhouse near the Whittier Hills, and um, there was a girl sitting on the porch playing a guitar. And that image just came, you know, was with me all my life. And then I sat down for, you know, it's like, okay, I got 30 minutes, I got to write a song. And um, I remembered that girl. And so I think, you know, so she became Marie. (laughs) And um, I think that one of the reasons why the song affected people, you know, so much and still does, is when I wrote it, I knew to leave things out. You know, yeah. uh, why is she singing sad? Well, you're not going to find out. You have to make it up. You have to reason. You know, think about it for yourself. Interesting. You know, you can put any you know put any story in it you want. Yeah. Um, and uh, so you know, there's some nice imagery in there, but there's a mystery of why is this? Why did this guy, the guy singing the song, why did why did the girl's folks say that he had to go? What did he do? You know, he did something bad. Yeah. Uh, but he's got his two weeks of back pay, and he's getting kicked out, and he's telling the girl, come on, let's go. Let's, let's get out of here. Yeah. You know, and uh, whether she, you know, the sort of at the end of the song, it implies that he leaves without her, and she just sits and plays the guitar. Hmm. And, um, you know, but I don't know, maybe maybe he swings back around. You know, yeah. so, there, so because he leaves some mystery in it, uh, I think that's, you know, that and, you know, the melody and the groove, you mm-hmm. know, uh, yeah. combined makes it a pretty, pretty powerful song in many ways. Yeah. Well, and Marie Marie certainly 
isn't the only blaster song that has lived on, you know, into your solo career. And I'd like to explore the evolution of, of a couple of others, um, starting with border radio, which, you know, appears on the blasters, 1981 self-titled album as a, a mid tempo electric guitar driven song. But then it crops up again on your first solo album, 1987's Romeo's escape as more of a ballad. And then it appears yet again, on 1994's King of California in this really acoustic-oriented version. She calls toll-free and requests an old song Something they used to know She prays to herself that wherever he is He's listening to the border at This song comes from 1962 Dedicated to a man who's gone 50,000 watts out of Mexico You know, I'd love to, to hear you comment on that song specifically, but also more generally, you are a writer who's willing to kind of revisit your work and, and represent some of your songs, and, and not all writers do that. I'm curious um, why you, you kind of... Are, are up for that, to, to explore different avenues of the same song in different contexts? Well, um, a few reasons. One is, I you know, I wanted to get it right. Hmm. You know what I mean? It's like, yeah. I want one version that's right. <laughs> when I did my first solo album, I, I couldn't sing, you know. And, um, and people were, you know, fans and all that were kind enough to indulge me. <laughs> for you know, for a couple albums while I learned how to sing, because I'd never sung before in my life outside of blaster rehearsals. When I bring a song in, right. and I'd play it for him and sing it like six, seven, eight times, and my brother would sit and listen, and then he'd start singing it, and then I'd never sing the song again, <laughs> you know. And uh, the blasters version of Barter Radio, um, when I wrote the song, I kind of wrote it as, believe it or not, I wrote it as a. Uh, sort of a country ballad for as, as a duet between Conway Twitty and Loretta Lynn. Huh. Yeah. And, um, um, you know, where Loretta would, would uh, um, sing the verses and Conway would do the, uh, the chorus. Uh, and uh, what's, ni- what's nice now is that um, Kelly Willison and her husband, Bruce uh, Robinson, uh, they, they cut it that way. Nice. Finally, somebody cut it the way I wanted to, you know, originally wanted to hear it. Right. Um, but, so, when I took it to the band, you know, like I said, I'd written it as a ballad, but I knew that the, that the Blasters were not going to play it that way. You know, they didn't want, you know, they wouldn't want to. Right. They wouldn't appreciate the song. So, you know, I just decided, you know, like with a lot of country songs, if you put, you know, a mid-tempo Chuck Berry groove to it, it works. Yeah, and so I did. Took it to rehearsal, and everybody latched onto that song right away. It just said, mm. you know, great song. <laughs> and, you know, this is great. I remember um, we had a visitor that night, uh, Larry Taylor, who was uh, friends friends of uh, of ours, and this is when Gene Taylor, Gene Taylor, our piano player, had joined the band. Right. You know, and Gene had grown up with us in in Downey. And, you know, I knew him since 1970. But then Gene, when he left Downey, he left Downey to join Can't Heat. And so he was with them for a couple of years. So he was in town joining the band. So Larry Taylor came down to say hi to him. And Larry, we played Border Radio for the first 
time, and Larry Taylor just said, that's a really great song. Did you write that? And I was like, yeah, I did, you know. <laughs> and so to have Larry Taylor, who I really admired, you know, um, say that meant the world to me. It was like, oh, my God, yeah. you know, maybe I am a songwriter, <laughs> you know. <laughs> right. Um, and so, to, you know, the reason why I revisit stuff is I do want to get it right. You know, I felt that there were songs in mind that, that you know, for Blaster songs in particular, you know, that I like the Blasters version a lot, you know? Yeah. But it's the Blasters version of the song. And it's not what I, as the songwriter, pictured. There's another song of mine that I, I've redid I, on King of California called Bus Station. Mm-hmm. And um, when, when the Blasters did it, you know, it was the same thing. It was like a mid-tempo rock and roller, and a lot of the lyrics just got lost in, in, in the presentation. And so I wanted to... You know, I'm, Bus Station is a song that I'm particularly proud of because when I finished writing that one, I felt like, hey, I'm a songwriter. Mm-hmm. If I can pull this, if I can write this, then I'm really writing songs. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And um, and so I wanted, I recut that on King of California because I wanted to get it right. Well, it must have had a screw loose in his head. End up like this after all he said He lies to her She kisses him Getting tired of love Bus station At sunup you know, because of our pompadours and our leather jackets and our alcohol and cigarettes and whatever else, and me jumping up and down on stage like a like a young stupid gazelle, you know, <laughs> um, people tended to put the blasters into a pigeonhole and leave us there. Yeah, and um, and I felt that, that 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 was wrong, you know, and, and I felt that. You know that my songwriting was when I'm good. I'm 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 as good as a lot of other people. <laughs> you know, is the way I feel. Yeah. Um, and so I wanted to get certain songs done right for the first time or mm. second time, you know, or third right. time. You know, because sometimes when you write a song, um, you're just happy that it rhymes. <laughs> you know? right. And you don't know what it means. And so, you, you, hey, this rhymes, this kind of works. And then you sing it for two, three years, and then in the fourth year, you go, oh, my God, I get what this song's about. <laughs> you know? yeah, right. And I better go, I'm going to re-record it now that I understand the song. You know, a, a, another example of that kind of evolutionary process is Long White Cadillac, uh, which appears on the Blasters 1983 album, Nonfiction. Um, you know, it shows up again in a kind of a tougher and bluesier version on your debut album, Romeo's Escape, in 1987. And then it was kind of reinterpreted by another artist, Dwight Yoakam, who made it a top 40 country hit in 1989. Sitting in the back of the long 
what can you tell us about that one? Well, I like the Blasters version of it. Um, it's a little more, uh, the Blasters version is kind of, um, you know, proto-surf-punk kind of thing, mm. um, which has nothing to do stylistically with, with Hank Williams, you know, but, <laughs> you know, well, what the hell, it sounded good, it rocked, and people, you know, people liked it. Um so when I cut it for my solo album, yeah, my first solo album, it was, yeah, it was, again, a situation of, you know, I always heard it, as you said, kind of slower and bluesier, and um, and it put a little more emphasis on the lyrics, um, and um, so when D- Dwight did it, he kind of, you know, took, he and Pete Anderson kind of took what I did uh, on my solo record, and then, you know, but gave it a groove that was a little more... Um, you know, for lack of a better term, a little more dance floor. You know, yeah. uh, it, you know, and so when I do it now, I kind of, I kind of do it when I play the song now. I do it as it's a combination of my uh, solo album, uh, Romeo's Escape version, and the Dwight version. You know, right. um, you know, but with a lot of Freddie King thrown in, mm. <laughs> you know, <laughs> for good measure. Right. But yeah, you know, I, I, so I always like when people, you know. Take one of my songs and put their own imprint on it. And, you know, when Dwight changed it, um, you know, I, I was really happy. You know, it's like um, uh, because you know he he. My only complaint with the Dwight version is they left out the second bridge, hmm. Hmm. and which is the most existentialist part. You know, bridge or part of the song. Uh, you know, it's, it's not about him. It's really the part that says I'm not out taking a ride in the Cadillac, it's the part saying I'm going to die now (laughs) (laughs) I don't know if he intentionally left it out like oh that's too negative you know (laughs) or what but uh, you know so anyway when you know when James McMurtry cut a song of mine called Dry River he completely reimagined it Mm -hmm. you know and and so I I like that yeah yeah um well, the Blasters 1985 album Hardline was a bit of a, a wider palette stylistically with songs like Little Honey that embraced bluegrass, basically, or Dark Knight, which was a little more heavily blues oriented. But that would be your last album with the group before you departed in 1986. And considering that you were the main songwriter in the band already, uh, what drew you toward a solo career? Or maybe a better way of asking that question is, what did you feel that you needed to accomplish as a writer that made leaving the band important at that time? Well, you know, you, you have to remember at that time there was still an L.A. music scene. Right. Um, and on that scene were all these great songwriters. Peter Case, uh, you know, um, um, Stan Ridgway, John Doe and Exene, um, you know, uh, Charlotte. Chaffee from the Go-Go's. Right. You know, there's, there's, there was a lot of songwriters, and everybody, you know, saw each other on a regular basis. Hmm. And so, sort of like, you know, years later when I tried to live in Nashville, you know, there'd be, in Nashville, there's all these people that go around saying, hey, so-and-so just wrote a new song, you know? Right. And it was a little bit like that in L.A., you know, in that you would go to the Whiskey or the Starwood, and X would have a new song. Or uh, the Plimsolls would have a new song, um, and um, or you know lesser known bands like the, the Sheiks of Shake would have a new song, or you know, and it was just so the the um, the uh, energy 
of that made songwriting really kind of, you know, it was like, I want to be a good songwriter. I want to be as good as Peter Case. I want to be as good as so-and-so. And, um, and so that kind of, you know, was a, was a driving force, you know? And so with Hardline, I kind of pushed the blasters to the, to the limit of what they would do, you know, stylistically. Um, you know, there was, there was blues on it. There was some rockabilly, but yeah, there was, you know, um, things like Little Honey, which, yeah, were kind of, you know, um, speaking of Larry Taylor, Larry played stand-up bass on it. And, um, hmm. you know, Richard Green, the great, uh, violinist played fiddle on it. You know, so it, you know, I was stretching, trying to stretch the band and there's, you know, if you ever hear the outtakes, you know, there's songs that didn't make the record where I was really trying to, you know, grow as a songwriter. And, and, um, I just got to a point, you know, as, as a songwriter that I knew that I couldn't, um, get better inside the context of a band, mm-hmm. Yeah, you know, um, and that applies to any band. I'm not picking on the blasters, you know, every band has got rules Yeah, and, you know, um, you know, uh, I'm sure if, if you go to, you know, the Rolling Stones have never recorded a polka <laughs> and there's a reason for that, you know, because <laughs> um, the Rolling Stones don't play polkas. So bands <laughs> have rules. And um, I felt that as a songwriter for me to grow and get good and, you know, get the get as close as I could to what I heard in my head when I was writing the song onto a record that I had to I had to be solo. Yeah. You know, there were other reasons, you know, we were all trying to kill each other. The blasters, you know, we'd all grown <laughs> up together. Right. You know, we were five guys that grew up together. So, you know, everybody was constantly busting at the other guy's balls. And, <laughs> and you know, there were physical fights constantly. And right. I just got tired of it. Yeah. You know, <laughs> it was not fun. And so it was like, okay, you know, I'm going to quit. And, you know, I joined X. Um, but it gets complicated because... Um, I'd agreed to do an album for the Blasters, uh, write the songs and play on it uh, for Warner Brothers, and Nick Lowe was the producer. And so while I was an ex, I wrote, you know, I started writing songs for the next Blasters record, just because I felt like they could, you know, they could make the record, get out on the road with another guitar player. And, and uh so we did this session that turned into a disaster mm-hmm. because uh, I decided when I was writing the song, okay, I'm not going to follow the blasters rules here, you know, and uh, I'm just going to write what I will feel like writing. So I wrote two songs. Uh, one was a sort of a bluesy um, ballad called brother on the line. And the other song was a thing called 4th of July. And, um, so I, I had a meeting with Nick Lowe flew in. And so a couple of days before we started recording, I went to Nick's hotel room and played him the songs. And, um, he, he just looked at me and he says, well, your brother can't sing these. And I was like, what are you talking about? And he's like, your brother can't sing these songs. They're not written for his voice. They're not written for how he sings. You, you could sing them better. And I looked at him. You know, and I was like, I don't think you understand. The idea is, I write songs, Phil sings them. I'm not in the band, Nick. You know, <laughs> I'm just I'm 
I'm just subbing here, and, and I'm just trying to do a favor. So Phil really has to sing them. And Nick's like, no, no, I won't record your brother singing these. And, wow. uh, and then I, I said to Nick, I said, well, I can't sing. <laughs> and he goes, well, I can't either, but I made a career out of it. <laughs> <laughs> and that's been my, that's been my uh, guiding, you know, um, talisman throughout my career. <laughs> well, I, you know, Nick Lowe can't sing, but he somehow had a career. So I'll do the same thing. It's making me wonder, is this kind of the birth of Romeo's Escape in a way? Because what I'm, what I'm hearing you say is that you were going to write songs for the Blasters, producer says i'm not recording these with the blasters and so and then does it just naturally go well i guess i'll record them or was there was there more to it specifically with fourth of july and that's a song that like you said you weren't following the band's rules so you were following something internal on it well it, it did yeah it did lead to what happened was uh i made i made my first solo album for a label that nick Lowe was uh connected with called demon records which was owned by uh uh Jake Riviera and uh, Andrew uh, Andrew Water and Elvis Costello and I think Nick was a co-owner too, uh, but it was mainly Jake Riviera's label, <laughs> and uh, so they they gave me like uh, you know thirty thousand dollars to make a solo album, and so between gigs with X and this that, and the other, yeah, I went and made you know Romeo's Escape, um, and. Uh, yeah, you know, my brother could, like the example of that song, Romeo's Escape, my brother could have sang the hell out of it. Hmm. Um, uh, a song like New Tattoo, my brother, yeah, he could have done that pretty well, too. Uh, but then there was also songs like I Wish It Was Saturday Night and Far Away and Fourth of July that, no, th- th- those are those are my songs. Hmm. You know? Yeah. On the stairs I smoke You know there are um, exceptions. Uh, one of which is is Dry River, which you mentioned earlier, is a song that Larry McMurtry covered. But generally speaking, your second and third solo albums, Blue Boulevard and Museum of Heart, are largely bluesy, electric guitar-driven records. Um, but there was this shift uh, with your 1994 album, the now classic King of California, which was much more of a, a rootsy folk rock album as you know immediately evidenced by the title track as soon as you you know put it on well i left my home and my one true love east of the ohio river father said we'd never wed for i had neither gold nor silver but my darling deeply shed no tear I think that it's fair to warn you That I return to claim your hand As the king of California What insights can you give us into that artistic 
shift, um, not just as a performer, but as a songwriter as well? Um, I wanted people to uh, hear the lyrics. Yeah. You know, I wanted people to hear the lyrics because um, I, I, I had done touring um, solo, you know, when I, when I signed with High Tone Records and did my first record with them called Blue Boulevard and the second one, yeah, Museum of Heart. And I would so I would go out and tour both with a band. Um, I had the great band from Springfield, Missouri. The Skeletons was were my was my backup band uh, for the Blue Boulevard tour, for example. Um, but then I'd also go out and do song a uh, tour solo acoustic, because you know it's it's hard to make money with a band, and it's easy to make money when it's just you. Yeah. Um, and so while I was do while I was doing the solo acoustic gigs. I started learning how to sing, and, or uh, let me rephrase. I started learning how to interpret my songs, hmm. and I was and I was watching certain performers. Like I did some shows uh, in that period with Richard Thompson, and I was watching him. And I wasn't watching his guitar playing. I was I was listening to his voice, and I was like, okay, we're you know he's got a bigger range than me, you know, blah blah blah. But roughly, he's singing most mostly in my range, and so if I, you know, what's how's he singing that? He's pretty laid back. Okay, he's laying back on the vocals. You know, uh, my vocal heroes growing up, you know, you know, were Big Joe Turner and and you know people like Sam Cooke and you know like they're George Jones. You know, it was like yeah. people that could really sing. You know, yeah. and and suddenly it shifted, and my vocal heroes became people that backed off, mm. you know, so, you know, Richard Thompson and, and a lot of his songs backs off. Yeah. Um, and he's telling the story of, you know, whatever the song is. And the same thing, suddenly it was like, oh, Leonard Cohen's right. <laughs> Leonard Cohen's got it, you know? Yeah. Um, and there's a, and the other, the other thing was, um, my dear friend and, and the, uh, was, is a guy multi-instrumentalist named Greg Lease. Sure. Who's, you know, for, for those of you listening, if you don't know who Greg is, it's spelled L-E-I-S-Z, and uh, he's on every record you own. <laughs> or every other record you own. You know, I mean, he's recorded with everybody. Yeah. And, um, but Greg is a dear friend, and Greg did a lot of these acoustic shows with me as an accompanist, you know. And Greg's really smart, and Greg... When he played on both blue, he played on all my solo albums, Romeo's Escape, Blue Boulevard, Museum of Heart. But I could always see him looking at the producer, whether the producer was Steve Berlin or Bruce Bromberg later on at High Tone, and just going like, "You're not getting his voice right," mm-hmm. you know. And then finally, Greg said, he came to me and he said, "You know, we're, we well, we both came to the idea at the same time of an acoustic album." And Greg just said, "I know how to get your voice." Hmm. You know, no one else knows how you sing. Yeah. And he said, you know, yeah, you're not, uh, you know, you're not Pavarotti, you're not, um, you know, Conway Twitty, you're not Al Green, you're something else, and, and here's how we record it. Uh-huh. And so that's suddenly, all that led up to me finding my, my, uh, my singing voice. Yeah. You know? Yeah. And um, so I really, I owe a lot of it to, to Greg, you know? Yeah. So... Up until King of California, most of the songs on your solo albums were written solo, but this one included not only a couple of collaborations, but a handful of cover songs 
ranging from Tom Russell's Blue Wing to Memphis Slim's Mother Earth to George Jones's What Am I Worth? Um, was there a conscious shift in that era away from being the sole writer of, of most of the tracks, or was this just kind of a natural evolution? No, I had, I had co-written before. Uh, like on Blue Boulevard, there's a song I wrote with Tom Russell called Haley's Comet, and on uh, Museum of Heart, there's a song called Between the Cracks that Tom and I wrote. Hmm. Um, no, the main thing about King of California was, you know, I started getting older, you know, <laughs> and uh, I, every album, you know, when you're young, young, like, you know, in your 20s, you're always going to make another album. <laughs> and then uh, when I got into my mid-30s, late 30s, when I made King of California, I felt like, well, this could be it. Huh. I could be working at a gas station next week, right? And um, and so, you know, I just I kind of switched over. A couple things changed in my mind, which was I really um, came to the uh, conclusion that the songs should dictate how the songs sh- sound. You know, not right. the producer, not the band, not the you know, get the right musicians for the song. You know, and, you know, whether it's a song of mine or whether it's a cover song, you know. Um, And then the other conclusion I came to is this could be my last record. Hmm. And and I really kind of felt that King California would be my last record. So I just thought, well, let's let's do this right, you know. And, um, you know, and, and let's, yeah, I loved, you know, the song Blue Wing that Tom Russell wrote. I just loved it. I loved it to the point where I feel like I wrote it. You know, it's one of those things. Right. And um, um, because there's a long story behind that song of how it changed my life. Hmm. And you know that if if I when I write a memoir, that'll be a big part of it. Is how that song changed my life. Same thing with Mother Earth by Mem- you know the Memphis Slim wrote. Um, you know, I loved that song since I was a kid, a little kid, and I remember hearing it for the first time on some weird TV show when I was like, you know, 10 years old. Hmm. And I was like, wow, you know? <laughs> and um, so I wanted to get all the songs that meant a lot to me yeah. onto that record, you know, whether I'd written them or whether they were covers, you know? Well, speaking of, of Tom Russell, uh, this was around the same period when the two of you executive produced a compilation called Tulare Dust, a songwriter's tribute to Merle Haggard, um, on which you performed Merle's fantastic song, Kern River. Um, talk a little about what Merle Haggard represents to you as a, as a songwriter. Well, you know, he he's uh, when we did the record, we felt, Tom and I both felt that uh, Merle Haggard was underrated as a songwriter. Hmm. He was overrated as a uh, pop culture personality icon, you know? Right. And we felt, well, underneath all that is a great songwriter. Sort of like Bruce Springsteen, you know? Underneath all the sort of cultural trappings of Bruce Springsteen is a really good songwriter. You know? Right, right. And, um, and we felt that uh, at that point in time, you know, Merle... You know, I won't say he was forgotten, but he wasn't having hits anymore. They weren't playing him on country radio anymore. Yeah. Um, and, um, you know, they weren't playing a lot of the of the sort of classic artists. But, you know, I think that, you know, Merle has, for both Tom and I, had a, there's a California connection, you know. Mm-hmm. 
And I remember the very first time that I heard Kern River, uh, I was in Washington, D.C., and I heard it on the radio. I had a day off, and I was just, you know, driving around town goofing off. And I heard that song, and I drove immediately to a record store. Hmm. You know, just like, yeah. you got Merle Haggard, Kern River. Yes, we do. Thank you. You know, <laughs> because, you know, I'd spent my childhood, you know, we vacationed on the Kern River. And, uh, and my mother's family is all, is, you know, they're all from the San Joaquin Valley. My mother's from the San Joaquin Valley. I, I, you know, and so when Merle would write about Kern River or write about, you know, t- you know, to, to Larry Dust or, or, uh, you know, what's that song? Uh, downtown Modesto, I was working the holiday. And, you know, when he mm-hmm. write things like that, it was just like, I know what you're talking about. Yeah. You know, I, yeah. you know. And uh, so we wanted to bring out that side of Merle Haggard, and and not the uh, you know the, the the sort of overwhelming Oki from Muskogee mystique, right. you know. And we wanted to sort of get rid of that and just like pretend this is an album by a young songwriter, you know. Yeah. yeah. And you know, and here he wrote these great songs, you know. And and it and I think it did. It was pretty successful. And I think it did what we wanted it to do in that I think, you know, Merle Haggard got, you know, we called it a songwriter's tribute to Merle Haggard to really kind of drive the, the point home of, you know, we're, we're judging Merle not on his politics, whatever they were, you know, no one could really ever get a grasp on that. <laughs> right. Um, and uh, we're judging him as a songwriter. Yeah. And as a songwriter, He's one of our best. He's up there with, you know, he's up there with Curtis Mayfield. He's up there with Bob Dylan. You know, um, the simplicity of language mm-hmm. and the 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 abil- ability to com- convey complex emotions in a few words is really something else. Mm-hmm. You know, um, if we make it through December, everything's going to be all right. I know. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. You know. Um, he he just had that that you know thing that the same thing Chuck Berry had mm-hmm. you know um, same thing you know Hank Williams had or Robert Johnson had it's the simplicity of of language that um, that you know I wish I wish that uh, more songwriters could master mm, you know yeah, yeah. Um, you know I, I've grappled with that monster most of my career <laughs> am I overwriting you know right. and maybe sometimes I am. Uh, and, but you know that was really his strength was just a few few words could go right to the emotional mm-hmm. core of whatever he you know whatever the, the the situation was heartbreak or joy or or whatever yeah you know yeah. and um, and so yeah that was the that was the great power of Merle Haggard you know talking about Kern River specifically you you included that song on your 2006 album West of the West which was a tribute to California songwriters, and I think the only original song on there was Between the Cracks, which you wrote with Tom Russell. Um, you and Tom have written quite a few songs together, and you both seem to be particularly inspired to write you know, together and separately about your home state, and that's something I think both Scott and I can resonate with. We've lived in California for uh, over two decades now, and you know, a lot of it just has to do with staying for two decades because of all the magic that's here in California. What is it for you about this state that, that continues to be such a muse for you as a songwriter? Uh, it's a lot of things. You know, I'm a fifth-generation Californian on my mother's side. 
Wow. And uh, so we go way back. But my but my old man, my dad, rode the rails out here in the 30s during the Depression. So I see it from both sides. Mm-hmm. You know, um, my dad came out here because of, you know, economic hardship and this and the other. Um, but it was the promised land where my mom, my mom, you know, maybe my grandparents or actually, no, my great-grandparents, um, you know, saw it as the promised land, and, and, you know, the generations that came after, they just saw it as home, you know, and, uh, you know, Native Californians were an odd breed, you know, um, and it's funny, a lot of the people that I work with um, turned out to be multi-generational Californians. Greg Lease, uh, his family goes way back in, in the San Joaquin area. Uh, my dear friend Christy McWilson, her family goes way back to a little town called Lamore in the San Joaquin Valley. My um, my family is from a little town called Reedley, which is about 20 miles south of Fresno. And um, so I think, for me, California has... It, it, it's, it, it's so many states hmm. in one, right? you know? Um and thusly, you can have, you know, who's the real California songwriter? Is it Brian Wilson or is it Merle Haggard? <laughs> right. And they're both Californians. Yeah. You know, or is it Jackson Brown? And they're all great songwriters, but they're all writing from a different experience. You know, I remember um, I, would, I covered Brian Wilson's Surfer Girl on West of the West, and uh, I used this great uh, rhythm and blues vocal quartet of the Calvanes because I kind of wanted to do uh, Brian Wilson more as if it was Jesse Belvin. I don't know if you're familiar with Jesse Belvin, the great singer and songwriter in the 50s who, who died tragically, you know, in, in Arkansas on tour. Hmm. And, um, you know, to me, Jesse Belvin was one of the, the greatest musical talents that L.A. Had produced and and in and in the black community and among the rhythm and blues community, he's you know he's a he's an icon, right. and I thought well let's let's make Brian Wilson a little more Jesse Belvin, <laughs> and what was funny to me is the Beach Boys were from Hawthorne, okay, and the Calvanes lived maybe six miles away, seven miles at the most, and they really had never heard Brian Wilson. Wow. You know, and so then I, I gave them um, uh, a tape with, you know, Surfer Girl, and just I put on some other Beach Boys stuff on there, just, and Freddie Willis, the, the leader of the Calvanes, was just like, that guy is really good. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, and it was funny to me, so to get back to California, just in the L.A. area, you can have two different worlds that never connect. Hmm. Yeah. You know, or they can connect via AM radio. You know, um, I did a gig once with Brian Wilson, and and I met him. And the only thing I wanted to talk about was Jesse Belvin. <laughs> I didn't <laughs> want to say, "Hey, man, loved loved smile." You know, I was like, "So Jesse Belvin, did you grow up here?" And you know, things like that. You know, how much? You know, I know that the 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 white uh, four freshmen had a big effect on you, but what about you know? Right. Um, and uh, so to me, that's one of the things that makes California interesting, both musically, artistically, and, you know, uh, geographically, or not geographically, environmentally, mm-hmm. in that, 
you know, the old joke about, or the old saying about, you know, you can go to the snow in the morning and then you can be in the beach in the afternoon. <laughs> and it's really true. Right, yeah. You know, and so growing up out here, you kind of take that for granted and mm-hmm. you don't think about it. Sure. And, and that sort of eclecticism, you know, I'm not going to say that California was a, uh, um, you know, a, 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 uh, a guiding light of tolerance, you know, because there was a lot of intolerance here, you know, mm-hmm. as, 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 as Merle Haggard would tell you. Um, but, it, compared to other places, this was. Yeah. But, you know, it was also, you know, there was cross-cultural things going on where, you know, um, I, I produced a couple records, or three records for a band called the Derailers, oh, yeah. and they're back in the 90s. And the whole Derailer sound was based on the Bakersfield 60s sound of, you know, Buck Owens and Merle Haggard and, you know, those records. And um, when I really got to studying those records, it was funny you know, a lot of the grooves were, you know, R&B kind of grooves, but done so subtly that you'd never know. Like, um, the the right symbol figure on Ray Charles's What I Say uh, is all over Bakersfield Country Records mm-hmm. of that era. Yeah. You know? And, yeah. It, and it's done so subtly. It's done, again, it's just done on, like, the bell of the right symbol will be a soft... You know, right. And so California was the kind of place where you could experiment with stuff like that, and that led to, you know, in many ways, um, a band like the Grateful Dead, who all you know grew up out here, yeah, and saw they saw no difference between you know jug band music or, or blues or country music or outer space music by Ornette Coleman, right? They didn't right. see the difference. It was all just well, we can do it all, yeah, you know, yeah. and. Um, and so that's one of the reasons why they're they're maybe the ultimate California band, you know, in a weird way. <laughs> right, right. Because, you know, like I said, in those days in California growing up, I could, my brother and I, you know, we could go to a, a, an R&B bar, sneak in, you know, as little kids to an R&B bar, and then we could sneak into a country bar, you know. Yeah. We could, you know, you could do all that, and you just drive a couple miles, you hmm. know. Sure. You could soak all that up, or, or you could go to a Norcanio bar and hear accordion players, you mm-hmm. know? Um, and so, musically, you know, in those days, it was so rich. And all you had to do was look for it, you know, because yeah. it was right there. And, um, you know, and that, that sort of eclecticism, you know, it became part of the blaster sound, and it certainly became part of, of you know, of my solo career sound. I, I never felt like, you know, when I did my first solo album, it got released out of Nashville. I got signed to Nashville, uh, CBS Nashville. And, they, you know, the head of that label then had a meeting with me. Um, and he said, look, you know, I think you're a talented guy. But, and, I, and this was a guy named um, uh, Richard Blackburn. And he had, he had, he was a record producer and he had produced, you know, some great hits for Roseanne Cash, among others. And he said, look, I'm going to produce your next album and I'm going to pick the musicians. I'm going to pick the songs. I'll let you write, you know, three of the songs on side two. He mm-hmm. goes, but I can make you into a star. And he said, think about it. And I went, you know, went to my place in, in Nashville and thought about it and realized, you know, I'm a, I'm a dirty, sweaty, bluesy rock and roller, you know, <laughs> right. and, 
And, uh, you, know, you know, there's times when I think, well, I wonder if I should have taken him up on that. <laughs> and, uh, but no, I'm just too, I'm too eclectic. I didn't want to get, um, you know, I think a lot of country musicians are extremely eclectic, but in order to satisfy country radio or, or whatever, they narrow their, they narrow their sound down. You know, right. you look at, the, um, you know, somebody like Vince Gill, you know, can, can play anything. Sure. You know? Yeah. And, yeah. um, you know, so I just never wanted to go down that route. You know, it, I didn't want to go down that route in rock and roll either. It's like, right. you know, I had one of the reasons I eventually signed with a small independent label, High Tone, and then signed to another one, Yep Rock, was because I didn't have to explain what I was trying to do. Yeah, I didn't have yeah. to explain, you know, why. Well, the song's got like a real bluesy feel, but then the chorus is kind of folky or country. You know, if I if I wake up and I feel like writing a country song, I'll write a country song. Right. If I wake up and feel like writing a blues song, I'll write a blues song. If I wake up and feel like writing a polka, I'll write a polka. <laughs> I'm really lucky in that a lot of other songwriting friends that that I've known that are very talented maybe got a one record deal. They did one record on a major label, and then they're kaput. You know, no one wanted to touch them after mm. that. Yeah, and I've been really lucky in that in that people have stuck with me through all my various incarnations yeah looking at your your body of work as a whole um following the the excellent blackjack david record in 1998 you released an entire album of traditional songs called public domain and i look at that album and the haggard tribute record the california songwriters tribute record and even the 2014 duet album of big bill brunzi covers that you did with your brother phil um, and I see this artistic impulse in you of not just being a songwriter, but almost being a, a preservationist in that, um, even though you are a great songwriter yourself, you do record a lot of covers and you seem eager to shine a spotlight on your influences, particularly historical influences. Um, why is that important to you artistically? That's really where I came from originally. You know, I'm still I'm still the guy. In 1979, when my brother Phil and I started the Blasters, you know, that's all we wanted to do. We wanted to, you know, play Howlin' Wolf songs. We wanted to play, you know, Chuck Berry songs or, or, or um, you know, uh, like I said, Carl Perkins or, you know, uh, obscure rockabilly singer songs. That's just what I wanted to do, you know. Yeah. Um, and And that's always been a part of me. You know, when the guy at Rolling Rock Records said, oh, you need to write some original songs. And I was like, okay. And then, like I said, I was a songwriter. But I never abandoned my, you know, my love for for the actual roots of what I grew up listening to. You know, whether it was blues or folk music or whatever. It just doesn't change. Yeah. Um, and so that part of the job description to me has always been my, my part of my job description is... is uh, find a good song, you know, whether it's written by somebody famous like Merle Haggard or, or written by somebody who should have been famous like my like my dear friend Chris Gaffney, you know, mm-hmm. it's just, you know, I, if I like a song and I feel that I can do it somehow, do justice to it, justice to it somehow, mm-hmm. then yeah, that's all part of my job. Yeah. You know, we started this whole interview off by asking about the song Ashgrove from your 2004 album of the same title. And, and that was your first record for the Yep Rock label after a long association with High Tone. Um, 
you know, from a creative standpoint, I know that, you know, you were talking about, well, when I wake up, you know, if I want to write a country song, I write a country song. And if I want to write a bluegrass song, I do that. And, you know, and I'm sure there's always, you know, sort of a, a welcome nature to new influences and, and new muses. Was there anything about going to a different label that affected your creative process or sort of brought you into a little bit of a new state of mind? No, not really. Um, because uh, Glenn Dicker uh, over at Yep Rock um, just said, yeah, whatever you want to do. So it's just mm-hmm. different letterhead on the <laughs> on the paperwork. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah, it really was. I mean, there was a change in that. The biggest change was the previous studio albums had been mainly acoustic. There was some electric here and there, but they were mainly acoustic because, again, I was learning how to sing, and I felt that uh, my voice translated best in an acoustic context like uh, context um, and so I, like my songs would get over better or my interpretations of old folk songs would be better if I did it acoustic but I was always out touring electric and you know um, and so Ashgrove was the record where it was like okay I think I can sing with an electric band now mm. and um, so the album's primarily electric when I was a young boy, I used to slip away Down to the ash grove to hear the old blues men play There was Big Joe and Lightning and Reverend Gary too But I'd sit and stare and dream of doing what they could do Well, it's been 30 years since the ash grove burned down and I out on this highway, traveling town to town, trying to make a living, trying to pay the rent, trying to figure out where. You know, uh, I'm sure I lost some of fans of uh, my acoustic stuff. You know, but you know, uh, to me, it's been proven time and time again that you know you can be a great singer songwriter and not be playing an acoustic guitar. You know, <laughs> right. um, well, you can play a loud electric one. You know. Um, so that was really the, the biggest change was just I decided, okay, we can we don't have to you know really separate the electric and the acoustic and do you know albums because the same time I was doing studio albums of acoustic stuff, I put out a couple live albums of electric stuff because I knew there were people that liked me bashing on electric guitar <laughs> and right. uh, and then at Ashgrove, I just decided, well, we can mix them we can put them all together, yeah, you know? yeah, and that's been my rule ever since. In 2011, you released your 11th studio album, appropriately titled 1111, <laughs> which was, you know, kind of pushing further into that tough electric blues that you'd been known for early on and were kind of re-embracing in that period in terms, uh, at least, of your, your studio records. Um, and one of your more well-known songs uh, is the lead track from that album, Harlan County Line. Uh, talk a bit about that one. Uh, that was uh, kind of a... Funny story, um, the producers and writers of a show called Justified great came to show. me out of the blue. Yeah, it was a great show. And they came to me out of the blue, and I'd been catching it when I was on the road, and just say, oh, what a cool show, you know. And then out of the blue, they, they contacted me and said, you know, you know, do you have a song for us? And the weird thing was I did kind of, I had a song fragment. Uh, it was about, uh, you know, that used the, the line Harlan County line. And uh, so I just expanded it. 
And it was like, oh, yeah. And I said, you know, when they asked me, I said, I sure do. When do you need it? You know? <laughs> and they said, well, as soon as possible, you know, we're blah, blah, blah. And so I just, you know, took out the, the scraps, you know, that I had and expanded it into a full song, you know. And because uh, sometimes, you know, I, you, you know, I think all songwriters do this. You, you know, you, you have an idea, you have half an idea, or you have a quarter of an idea, and you write it down, and you either go back to it or you forget about it. And so it was one of those things that it, that, that it had been kind of around for a couple of years, and then it was kind of like, oh, okay, well, this is the reason why I kept that scrap. You know, the right. uh, uh, pretty much most of the first verse, you know, I'd written, and uh, so it was like, okay. Let's just flush it out. And so I went into the studio and, you know, cut it and sent it to them. And next thing you know, yeah, they're using it on the show. And then they wanted me to be on the show playing it. And it was like, well, okay. <laughs> you know. Of those memories I pretend to forget. Because I always want to live without regrets. But, yeah, I still think of her from time to time. She's still living across the Harlem County line. Yeah, I also wanted to ask you, uh, you know, the song Johnny Ace is Dead. That's obviously a blues song, but in terms of the way it's constructed lyrically, it belongs to the folk song tradition, you know, of musically preserving a true story or historical event. I sound like, you know, a dictionary saying that, but you know what I mean. He was flirting with the women who had come backstage and he said, ladies want to see me play a wild Inspired you to write that one and to write it that way. Um, you know, it's weird. I uh, w- when I had the Guilty Women, there was a violinist in the band named Amy Ferris, um, and Amy was a very talented, you know, musician, singer, and, and songwriter. And um, Amy committed suicide, hmm. and um, and then um, another friend of mine. Um, did a similar thing and I couldn't understand suicide. And so the, the way that I started to deal with, um, Amy's suicide was by writing the Johnny Ace song. It was like a way of, you know, I wrote a song for Amy on the record called, uh, on 11, 11 called black Rose of Texas. And that came after I wrote Johnny Ace because you know, the, 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 the mystery of the death of Johnny Ace of, was it suicide? You know, was he murdered? Was this and the other? And uh, and so I wrote it to kind of like help me, you know, deal with Amy's death. Yeah. You know, I mean that sounds ridiculous, I know, but it's really you know songwriters often sound ridiculous when you ask them about their song. <laughs> and so that was written. You know, it was like, you know, I, I'd always been fascinated by the Johnny Ace thing, but I was also, you know, why do people do that? You know, why would somebody do that? You know, and I, you know, I still don't have an answer. You know, and as regarding what happened, Johnny Ace, what I tried to do 
I did so much research, you know, into his death that, uh, you know, it kind of consumed me for a while. When I was a little kid hanging out at the Ashgrove, you heard stories. Mm-hmm. You know, there was always the other the other side of the story. And so, you know, there were stories about the, the murder of Sam Cooke. There were stories about Johnny Ace, you know. Um, I remember seeing Big Mom Thornton, and people were saying, you know, she always had a purse on stage. And so the story then was inside the purse is the gun that Johnny Ace killed himself with, hmm. you know. And uh, so there were always stories. I was always fascinated by it. And so, yeah, I just decided this will be my, my little therapy to deal with Amy, the loss of, of Amy, you know. Yeah. And uh, um, so, yeah, it, but you're right. It, it's more of a, it's sort of a, you know, a folk noir blues. You know, mm-hmm. if, if uh, yeah. Raymond Chandler had written a folk song and a blues band cut it, you know, <laughs> it's kind of a way to view Johnny Ace, yeah. Right, right. Um, well, after a couple albums of, of cover songs with your brother, Phil, you recorded a collaborative album with Jimmy Dale Gilmore in 2018 that was also uh, heavy on cover songs. But um, the title track, um, Downey to Lubbock, um, is one that the two of you uh, wrote together. You know I've been up on the mountain and I look for the promised land And I've been to the ash grove and I shook lightning's hand Now I'm leaving tonight, people, I'm down in the lover's band Well, I'm an old flat wander from the great high plains We've touched briefly on co-writing, and and you do co-write with with a handful of people. Um, But when you co-write, do you tend to get alone in a room with somebody and and just kind of work on the song till it's finished? Or are you more someone who sort of trades ideas back and forth remotely? Or do you have a particular process for for collaboration, or is it just kind of different depending? I've done it all uh, in co-writing. I've done, you know, the sit sit in a room and, you know, like, um, I co-wrote it on, on Ashgrove. There's a song called Somewhere in Time that I wrote uh, with uh, uh, Louis Perez from Los Lobos and David Hidalgo from Los Lobos. And with, with writing that one, that was a sit in the room and don't leave till it's done kind mm. of thing. Um, some of the, you know, Tom Russell, with when we wrote Haley's Comet, was a sit in the room and don't leave till it's done. But then other songs that Tom and I wrote because of geographic distance, you know, we're done, yeah, with phone calls, you know. Um, hey, man, I got the line, <laughs> you know, oh, that right. kind of thing. Um, and then, you know, I, I wrote some songs uh, with Doc Pomus, the, the late, great Doc Pomus. Really? Well. For a movie called, yeah, for a movie called Cry Baby that, that uh, John Waters made. And that, that was a sit in the room and don't leave until the song's done. And in that case, it was about three nights. Wow. You know, I spent like three or four nights with Doc Thomas in New York. And it was like, we wrote we wrote three, four songs, two of which were used in the, in the movie, you know. Um, but yeah, it was a don't leave until the song's done. Yeah. But then, yeah, other people, it's, you know, yeah, it's pretty loose. You know, I, I'm used to doing it so many ways, co-writing. And with Jimmy, with, with Jimmy Dale, 
um, on that particular song, I I wrote the first verse, and we did a first batch of sessions, and I came in, and it was kind of a more of a Mississippi blues thing, and uh, and I cut the verse and gave the tape to Jimmy. He was heading back to Texas, and I said, "Well, listen to it, and see what you can come up with." And then uh, it was about a couple weeks later, he came back out, and we did more sessions, and. Uh, by that time, I decided, nah, it, you know, it doesn't really work as a Mississippi blues song. It's kind of more of a, you know, up-tempo Chicago blues thing, you know, mm, right. um, with a vague, you know, kind of, you know, kind of. It's kind of the groove of Memphis or or high heel sneakers, you know, mm-hmm. um, and uh, or Linda Lou, you know, any sort of barroom blues kind of groove, and then. You know, um, so when we recorded, we started recording, and it was just like, okay, Jimmy, I'll just make up lyrics here for your verses. And, and Jimmy was like, no, 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 I can do this. And so we cut it, and I did the first verse, and then we get to Jimmy's verse, and he just started singing his verse. <laughs> and <laughs> some of it was stuff that he had jotted down mentally, and some of it was just stuff he made up on the spot. Wow. You know? So it was like, I think I think in there somewhere you hear me yell "Yeah" <laughs> in the background because he, he he came up with this line and I was like "Yeah," you know? <laughs> and uh, so that was spontaneous. That was yeah, that was basically written in the studio. Cool, you know. It, well, your most recent release is from an old guitar, rare and unreleased recordings. Um, that's a mix of all kind of different songs, and uh, you know it, we've talked to different folks that have made records during the pandemic year. And there's usually a different process of what it means to everybody. What did that look like for you making a record during this particular season? Well, it was really just, it was gathering up things that I always wanted released. Hmm. You know, um, I was supposed to, you know, uh, I put out a record in 2020 called the third mind, which was a psychedelic uh, album with, um, Michael Jerome and Victor Krummenacher and uh, Jesse Sykes and David Emmergluck. And uh, that was recorded, you know, I record all my records live, you know, uh, with everybody in the studio kind of looking at each other. Uh, But this one was very special because it was no rehearsal, no arrangements. You know, only thing we agreed on was the key. You know, we'd say, okay, it's key of D, whatever happens, happens. (laughs) And, And some great things happened. And um, so we were supposed to go in and do a second album, uh, and we, I wanted to do it right away, you know. But the pandemic made it impossible, you know. Um, uh, everyone was scared, you know. Jesse Sykes lives up in Seattle, and and David Emmergluck is sort of based out of New York, and and it was like people were scared to fly, people were scared to be in the same room, you know. Um, so it made recording that impossible. It just because, you know, we could certainly record it in other studios and send everybody tapes. Mm-hmm. But, you know, the idea of, of recording live and spontaneous, you know, arrangements and this and the other is impossible. And then with, so from an old guitar was things that I, you know, the bulk of it was things, songs that I recorded just for the fun of recording. Um, and, um, you know, uh, there were songs that, you know, one or two that should have been on my album 1111. In hindsight, I look at, ah, I should have put that on instead, hmm. you know. But um, 
Yeah, it was, you know, it was, a, it was a putting together, the hard part was putting together all this, all these sort of musically disparate parts because there's country rock on there, there's blues, there's, uh, you know, singer-songwriter stuff. You know, there's Bill Morrissey, my dear late friend Bill Morrissey, the great songwriter, and, and then Peter Case and, and Chris Smither, you know, so it's kind of, kind of all over the map it's acoustic it's electric it's this and and so the the big challenge on that wasn't you know wasn't that i made the record of pandemic it was just like you know finally i have an ex- a reason to put this out you know put these tracks out that i that to me some of them are as good as anything i've ever done yeah. and they've just yeah. been sitting you know gathering dust and, and i didn't want that to happen um you know because it's just about everything on that record in fact, not even just about everything on that record is as good as anything I ever did. So, so I, you know, that was the hardest part was just the juggling of okay, where does this song go? Where does does this fit with? Does this, you know, like there's a cover of a Willie Dixon song called Peace, and uh, and it goes into a Marty Robbins song called um, Man Walks Among Us, which is kind of jarring, I think, to some people to go from you know this very kind of dark minor key blues. And then go into this kind of, you know, really lushly, you know, um, country, you know, song. And, uh, to me, it makes total sense, you know. (laughs) So, um, you know, I don't have a problem with it, you know. It's like in my world, that's, like I said earlier, it's all rock and roll. You got (laughs) guitars, you're a rock and roll band. Um, and, uh, so yeah, it just makes total sense to me, you know. And so, you know, I'm really, I'm really proud of the from an old guitar album. I think, you know, some of my best guitar playing's on there. Mm-hmm. You know, mm-hmm. and, and you know, there's, there's, you know, doing other people's songs. I try to always do them differently, and so that's always been kind of my goal: is how do I make this? You know, how do I make it sound like I had a hand in writing it? You know. Yeah, yeah. Well, Dave, I feel like we have. Uh just scratched the surface we've kind of water skied across the uh, trajectory of your albums here and and hit some highlights and just amazing uh, insights and and thoughts on your own process and and the world of of songwriting so thank you so much for spending some time with us yeah and it's just been great to uh to be able to pick your brain a little bit and 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 hear about this aspect of your career thank you very much it's been a ball Thanks for listening. We'd love to stay connected with you, so please take a moment to subscribe to Songcraft via Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or your podcast app of choice. If you like the show, we ask you to consider rating us and leaving us a good review. Word of mouth is important, and letting other potential listeners know what you think of the show helps us tremendously. And of course, nothing beats a personal recommendation. Perhaps take a moment right now to text or email one friend who you think would appreciate what we do and send them a link to our show, letting them know how much you enjoy it. As a reminder, you can sign up for our email list at songcraftshow.com and find out how to help support us at patreon.com slash songcraftshow. And you can follow us on social media by searching for Songcraft Conversations on Instagram and Songcraft Show on Facebook and Twitter. Thanks, as always, for listening and for your support.